0: Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton and we're back. Finally, finally, finally. And this is actually a very special episode to be back for because this one we recorded out in the field. Um, we had an opportunity. If you remember the Lakey Awards from this year, you go back and listen to them. They're back in December. We'll go to Lakes.com. Uh, one of the Lakey Award winners for uh, Great Lakes Non-Animal of the Year was the Inland Seas, which is a sailing vessel from the uh, uh, Inland Seas Education Association. It's a 77-foot-long schooner. Uh, that does outreach and education work with with children's groups, typically, or school groups, or whatever. And uh, Juliana Lissick over there reached out and said, "Hey, Stuart, we're going to be in Chicago. Would you like to come on the boat?" And when somebody says, "Would you like to come on the boat?" the answer is, "Well, yes, we would like to come on the boat." And so Renee and I actually went out there. I'm recording this on Wednesday, July 19th. We went out there on yesterday, Tuesday, July 18th. Got to spend a couple hours out there, learning from all the cool people on the boat, uh, getting to see the schooner in action. And we just recorded little sort of mini interviews with a, a number, uh, a, a good chunk of the crew. And so we're going to present those two here, sort of stitched together with um, some interstitial sound from the from the boat, I think is the best way to put it. And uh, we're going to bring that to you uh, right now. And um, we asked Quinn to do kind of a heavy lift on this one to make because we're not live audio producers, right? This is an NPR. We have no idea what we're doing. And so then our typical mode of operation is to then take this on our wonderful editor, Quinn Rose and say, Quinn, we don't know what you're doing. Can you make something of this? And so, uh, you and I will find out live together what she was able to make of this. But beforehand, before we get going, I do want to say thanks to Juliana and the entire crew of the, um, of the uh, Inland Seas and the entire group there. It's a really neat group. So I would go check them out at schoolship.org. And if you're ever in Michigan near Traverse city where they are, you should definitely try to get on a boat. If they're ever in your neighborhood, you should definitely try to get on it there too. Just get on the boat. That's what you need to do. And so with that, We present to you our day on the Inland Seas. So
1: uh, my name is Rebecca Hancock, and I'm the mate aboard the Inland Seas. And I have been here, this is my third season. I've held a license since 2003. I went to the Maritime Academy in Traverse City, Michigan. And yes, yeah, so I actually have an unlimited tonnage license, which means that like no matter how big the ship is, you know, as long as it's near coastal, like the, the license I currently hold is near coastal, which means that I can go up to 200 miles offshore. And so I could, you know, take a couple of tests and whatever, like get an, you know upgrade to an ocean license. Right. But I've been <laughs> busy working, so I haven't made that jump yet but um I've, I've worked on all different sorts of vessels in the time since i've had my license i, I started out working on freighters on the great lakes for about 12 years really? and then a couple of research vessels most immediately before inland seas i was working for uncruise adventures which is a small cruise ship company that instead of taking people shopping takes them out into the wilderness and you know they go hiking. They do kayaking, stand up paddle boarding, on little skiff tours. And yes. They,
0: they go to different Great Lakes. No, no, no.
1: This is so the ship that I was working on. We did um, winter in Baja, okay, and summer in Alaska, in southeast yeah. Alaska. The great lakes and Southeast Alaska. It was terrible. It's just awful.
2: So how is it different here, working with the kids compared to your previous adventure?
1: Well, cargo does not talk. So there's that. Um, It's also a very different work culture. And so, you know, the the purpose of this vessel, as opposed to, you know, all of the other ones that I've worked on, you know, pretty much for profit of some sort. Um, And the fact that we are, you know, both at our home port in Suttons Bay, Michigan, as well as when we're traveling, we're basically taking the message of our program and, you know, inviting the interaction with the things that are in the water, you know, learning about sailing. And it's it's a very fulfilling job as compared to... I mean, I, I've enjoyed all of the ships that I've worked on. Um, but particular to inland seas, it, you know, even at the end of a long day, a long week, a long month, you know, particularly when we're traveling, you know, there's just a lot that goes into that logistically. And, you know, there's a lot of demands on our, our bodies and our minds and everything like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, no matter how long it's been, you know, there's that satisfaction of knowing that we as a group and a team are all making a really big difference, both, you know, taking people out on the water, getting them to think about things that they do in their daily life differently. And, you know, we can't know the impact that just even a single sail like this might have on somebody's life to where they remember that and they go study biology or they become sailors themselves or, you know, just many different trajectories that might not have been present otherwise.
0: Or even just know that there's a lake here, I think, sometimes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's
1: amazing how people that live near water, particularly when those places are cities, it, the people who live there may have never, you know, done anything interacted with the water, you know, depending on what kind of community they come from and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's it's a little bit strange sometimes, to you know, for us coming from away to be the ones that are like, let me introduce you to this thing that's like right here <laughs> but I mean somebody's got to do it right
0: <laughs> so how, why did you move from like I don't know if this is like industry to to this or uh, like I don't know what the right term is but what what made you make that so you talk about how it's really rewarding in different ways mm-hmm. um and uh and but were you looking for that sort of fulfillment or you just don't want to be out at sea for months at a time or what why, um, you make the move?
1: it's got there are a lot of factors in my decision and you know this certainly isn't you know the only thing that I'll ever do for the rest of my career necessarily um when I got my license I told myself that I would to the best of my ability work in as many different maritime environments as possible types of ships okay. and stuff like that um I, I still have this like you know I don't want to say secret but like um still present dream to work on a tugboat and i am definitely romanticizing it because from the people that i've talked to What's they're
0: romantic about working on a tugboat. Oh,
1: they are adorable. They are. Cute. Particularly the small ones, yeah. you know, they're like
0: they're really tiny. Yes, yeah,
1: seriously. So what you have is like a very powerful thing in a small package yeah. and i uh, I can get to that. Like, I I relate to it.
0: Got it. You mean because you are not as tall of stature as some people? Because I am a a somewhat somewhat tiny
1: person. Yeah, Yeah. like nobody's able to see what I look like. But you know, just like my mother, uh, you know, I I share the um, the the presence, if you will. They
0: can feel the power coming through. They,
1: they do. You know, and sometimes they don't always like it, but you know that's their (laughs) problem, right? Um, So, when I came here, uh, you know, I, I live in the area. Um, COVID happened, so the other job that I had kind of evaporated for a little bit and I was looking for something else. And, you know, it wasn't motivated necessarily by, like, staying home. It's a, it's a convenient part about it. You know, right. my husband would probably agree. Um, but uh, it just was something that I had an interest in and um, I, I have an undergrad that I did before the Maritime Academy um, from College of the Atlantic. Okay. So I have a Bachelor of Arts. In, Bar Harbor mate. Yes.
0: Bachelor of Arts in Human Ecology,
1: which people just kind of go, huh?
0: Yep, that's what they offer there. I forgot. I got their stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, okay. They, but no. I mean, I was on the mailing list.
1: Not yep. that many people have even heard okay. of the school. Yeah. And then once you go down the road of human ecology, their face kind of just goes, right? like, huh? It's
2: not that far. So, from like, you right. know, you Please. take
1: the study of ecology and then you put the human part in that, like, sometimes science does not, <laughs> but, Wait, but we have but to.
2: How do you not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right.
1: And so, I mean, this particular job very much, you know, calls upon all of that experience and study and everything like that so right.
0: you know. wrap up question wrap up question yes. I can ask everybody this I just thought of it is alright so what's it's not that exciting right. what's one <sighs> thing you've learned about the Great Lakes that you want to share with
3: our audience oh it's a Great Lakes factoid a Great mm. Lakes factoid it's a great mm. factoid about the Great Lakes mm. that,
1: well I mean certainly the fact that it's 20% of the world's freshwater. 20% of the world's fresh which is surprising yes you know because the Great Lakes are just kind of this like sort of sleeper in a way a like people haven't even really see it from an airplane, heard of right? them but <laughs> I don't know that I really knew much about the Great Lakes before just you know going ahead and moving there
0: yep so no that's true my family comes up from the Gulf South and I've they're like oh oh
1: and they're <laughs> You know, often not given the credit that they deserve. You know, people think, oh, like lakes, whatever. It's not that rough. It's not that big of a deal. Like, <laughs> you don't have to know what you're doing to right. sail on them. And yeah. it's just a lake. You really do have to know what you're doing. Yes. That's right. not exactly true of some of the people around,
0: uh,
1: you know, in the the smaller boats. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So they're dropping it down into the water now we're supposed to call out five all right guys if
4: you are not lowering the net, could you take a couple steps back
0: please to give them
4: a little space thank
0: you this whole trip has been them politely telling me to move
5: (laughs) (laughs) hi my name is jillian votava i'm the stem and internship coordinator here at inland seas education association uh i wear many hats for the organization. This is my seventh season with Inland Seas, and uh, I am a full-time employee, but it's fun more fun to say seasons, you know. Seasons.
0: I thought it didn't occur to me. They're seasons because you're not doing this in the winter, are you?
5: Correct, yeah. The boat is only operating May through October.
0: We need to put some icebreaker stuff on the front there. So what are
2: some of your, your things, your hats? The things you do? Some of my
5: hats that I wear, uh, I'm one of the lead uh, instructors on board, so I lead programs just like Juliana is doing today. Um, I also lead our overnight programs in the summer, so I'll be on for five days at a time. I also uh, post for, interview for, recruit, train interns with the organization and this year I had six interns in the six? spring yeah and three continued on in the summer so
0: are these I guess college students and do they stay on the boat are there interns here now
5: There, uh Abby is not on board now today is her day off which is why I am working as a deckhand one of oh, my other man. hats is that I cross train yeah. as a crew member so uh I am being a deckhand for Abby she's off this morning but um they're not just college students there's no enrollment requirement for internships. That is how I started, was as an intern, and I was three years out of college already at the time. So had they had the enrollment requirement, I would not even be here. We'd all be together. Yeah, so I, I keep that. It's it's not, you don't have to be in school. We do have a minimum requirement because we work with teenagers, An 18 years old is just a little too close to 17.
3: Gotcha.
5: (laughs) So, yeah. So, And I'm the person that trains them. And um, I do consider them internships and not summer jobs. And there is a difference. What
0: is the difference in your mind?
5: My mind, an internship offers mentorship opportunities and networking opportunities. So, people that are, like, if maybe you're changing career directions, internship, not a summer job. Internship means... I want a little bit more mentorship and connections to networks. So I work really hard to make that happen for my interns. So it's not just a summer job. Are right. um, they yeah, paid, though? These, these are paid right. internships. Yeah, we, we believe strongly in paid Yeah, I'm not allowed to
0: editorialize, I don't think, or because I'm a humble public employee, but you got to pay internship. Yeah,
5: I agree with that as well. So. Just, yeah. so, yeah, and our internship program has been growing. In northern Michigan, one of our challenges – in the Traverse City area is actually housing. Oh yeah. It's a very touristy area, a lot of second home ownership. Um, In 2019, we remodeled our whole um, center, our building, and we redid our basement into a 40-bed dorm space. That'll do it. We actually offer on-site housing for our interns now. We're able to do that because housing was a major issue. It meant you could only recruit interns who had a place to live or a connection to the northern Michigan region. And we're, now that we can offer housing, we can break that. And I've had interns from as far away as Florida. And um, this year in the spring, I had someone who goes to school in Kingston, Ontario. So Lake Ontario was represented this year in my interns.
2: <laughs> so speaking of interns, and you started as an intern? Yes. What pulled you in?
5: Why did you? Why this? Yeah, so I had a quote-unquote real job. <laughs> As a hydrogeologist, and uh, my background is in earth sciences, and I really just did not enjoy that at all. I wanted to work with people in science, so I was looking for opportunities to do science communication, really, and informal science outreach. So lots of things through National Park Service, a lot of federal, through the federal jobs agencies, a lot of nonprofits were out there, but a lot of them had that enrollment requirement and I was three years past graduation. So this one did not and I applied and um, I mean, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin originally, so I have a strong connection to the Great Lakes and uh, I did well in my interview and they hired me on. I
0: hadn't thought about the idea of the enrollment thing because one thing we're always talking about is, is how do we work to improve uh, our representation and diversity and things like that but but when you have a I hadn't thought about enrollment requirement being a potential barrier to people who might be switching careers and, and that's
5: yeah or they've done two years of college and they didn't like that major and they're kind of in an in-between space yeah those enrollment requirements really kind of make you feel like you missed a window
0: oh that's interesting somewhere. yeah so one of the things you do, you say, you're the STEM coordinator. When y'all are thinking about programming or your education or whatever, do you spend a lot of time thinking about standards and worrying about standards? Or, or is... yes,
5: we actually we have an education coordinator, oh, Tricia. She's okay. not on board, um, so that's a whole full time job and it's in and of itself. Yeah, so that our school programs when they're coming on our field trips they can justify that to their administration and say like we are actually hitting uh, these science or social studies or you know English language standards um, mostly stem standards but not. language arts is in there too as well
0: so you do get a lot of schools that come in not just so we're we're out yes. today with uh, yep. uh the boys and girls club but 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 that, Yeah yep, so when so the summer school's good. out mm-hmm.
5: right but we start operating in May so we get like that last 6 weeks of the K12 school year and then we go all the way into October, about mid October. So from Labor Day to mid October, we get about a six week season with schools back in session. Uh, so, yeah, there's like a spring, summer, and fall season within for your season. us. Yeah, within that. And it's a lot of school groups coming as class classroom field trips so yeah and so the
2: how do, how do the kids how do those schools find you
5: how, how do you connect with the kids oh yeah uh well it's usually through a lot of teacher recruitment uh energy and as well as administrations and stuff so some of my, my other colleagues attend you know the michigan science teachers association conference every year uh, some of my colleagues attend great lakes educator type conferences every year and so that's kind of how we're getting our name out there um juliana who's leading today also runs a, a four-day professional development for teachers and that's a great recruitment strategy um one thing it is through teachers to recruit to get their classrooms out but it's also through their administration their their principals their superintendents have to understand the value before they can approve field trips you know so um there's there's a lot of strategizing through that way you know, district level.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I taught in middle school for a couple of years and, and getting the field trips to happen.
5: Ready right about? I have to put the phone, I mean, the, oh. fo- <laughs> the microphone down in right. a second. Yep. Thank you.
0: All right, so now we're doing more sailing. The thing about being on a schooner, I guess we're schooning right now. We're schooning. Is that, well, here's a question. Well, I guess you have to do your thing. This is Rebecca again. All right. Why is it called a schooner, Rebecca?
1: Well, as far as like the actual word, um, I don't know the etymological history of the word schooner. However, it does mean that it's a sailboat with at least two masts.
0: Two masts at least. And I learned that the main mast has to be as tall or taller than the foremast.
1: Yes.
2: Is there a reason why the um, the sails are such an interesting color, kind of coppery, brownish? Color, yes.
1: May I come across? Um... they they look cool. They do look cool. Traditionally, the sails were tan bark, like the color, and then were treated to help them last longer. Okay. And so that process made them red.
0: So this color is just sort of reminiscent of that. I mean, these are just, what, nylon or something?
1: Dacron, so it's a synthetic material. But it lasts for 8 or 10 years. The suit of sails, we got a new one. Our new ones, made this year by a guy who's about a thousand years old, yeah. and still at it. He pretty much came out of retirement. What percent of sales, sales are
0: made by a guy who's a thousand years old came I out mean, of retirement? I mean, probably
1: like a very high percentage because it's you know it's just like a lot of um, trades or, like really specialized things that people do. Like this, you know the the younger people right now. I mean. I hope it's becoming more popular to, like, take on those sorts and learn those sorts of jobs. That's the whole deal, right? You know, you're going to have to learn it from someone that's been doing it and really, you know, another thing that you would really have to have a strong passion for because, I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah.
2: I hate to hear that it's a dying art.
1: Yeah, you know, traditionally rigged schooners are still out there and doing things, but even just... What we're doing is not not a dying art, but, I mean, certainly across the maritime industry, you know, there's not enough people. So, more people need to become
0: sailors. You know, so you don't know why things are called schooners. You know what a schooner is. That's okay. What is the, um, how big is this schooner? We are
1: 78 feet.
0: 78 feet. And yep. if I wanted to buy a 78-foot schooner, ballpark. Oh,
1: geez. Um, I mean... I think it's a pretty wide range, of you know, cost as far as like twenty bucks. What? Oh, okay, well, more than twenty, okay. probably in the millions.
0: That's what I was afraid of.
1: Yeah, I, I want to
5: say I think they spent seven hundred fifty thousand in nineteen ninety
0: four. Nineteen ninety four. A lot more yeah. than that. <laughs> Last year it was 1.2 million. This year it's 1.8. Thanks. To the inflation I mean,
1: stuff. Uh, how much you got?
0: <laughs> no, not that is the answer, right? But it is. It's an if you have to ask, right? But it's a really cool. But so the point is actually, so here we are giving these kids, the Boys and Girls Club today paid zero dollars and zero cents, a chance to go on a, a two million dollar schooner essentially, and to get an education. So that's unbelievable. So if people want to donate, here's the move to help keep up this. Uh, I said $2 million. It may not be, but this very expensive schooner, where should they go to donate money to you? Schoolship.org. Schoolship.org. Yeah.
1: That's where they go, and we will gladly
0: take all your money. Or if you want to advertise it, We don't have advertisers, but if you have a $2 million idea a for schooner, advertising. A schooner idea. A schooner idea. You we'll, would certainly we'll name the schooner after do you well. Yeah.
1: You know, because there's the, the reason that, I'm sure you're probably aware, we just bought another vessel called the Alliance, and... You know that was a direct result of more people wanting to get onto the vessel and experience our program than we had the time for.
0: I believe it. I mean, it, yeah. Even to get Rini and I on here, there was like two two sailings or two uh, segments, two you voyages. You got to show up, where there was time. And wait yeah. and find
1: out, and yeah, if the boat's full, so sorry.
0: Boat's full, sorry. Yeah. But I'm glad you're here now. Yes, we're thrilled to be here.
4: All right, let's go sailing on three. One, two, three. Let's
2: go sailing!
6: My name is Izzy Cooper. I'm the program coordinator at Inland Seas Education Association. And I am hanging out at our plankton station on board our ship today. So we had students who deployed a plankton net this morning over the side of the ship. And we took a sample. It filters through... significant amount of water and then we get a concentrated sample that we then have the students come down and they learn about the different types of plankton in the water phytoplankton and zooplankton and then we will have them take little droplets and we put those droplets underneath the microscope and we try and find and identify different plankton that are in the water so right here we've got ourselves a calanoid copepod And its claim to fame is that it's just like the plankton in SpongeBob. <laughs> they were
0: talking about that earlier I'm, I'm yeah. not necessarily a Spongebob expert because, Nor am I. Yeah. So this one <laughs> so it looks like um it's got two large antennae, and mm-hmm. uh, they're probably not antennae. What are those things? They are. They're antennae. And they're antenna. mm-hmm. they, hair, are not hairy, but they have little cilia-looking things on them. Anyway. Yeah,
6: they've got these little spiky things. And this one that we're looking at, it looks like maybe one of the antennae has broken off, unfortunately, a little bit. But th- one of the easy ways to identify if it's male or female is if it's a female, her two antennae are going to be completely straight across, kind oh. of like what's depicted in this picture. If it's a male, they're going to have a kink. In one of their antennas, which is actually, if you ever watch Spongebob, the plankton is a man in that, and he's got a kink in one of his oh, antenna. So cool. And then we've got this singular eye right up here as well at the very top of the body. And then it's sort of just like long and skinny. And then at the bottom you can kind of see we've got this. It almost looks like a tail here. If um, if a female is pregnant, this is... it there's an egg sac at the oh, bottom. Okay. So it's that's where she holds all of her eggs. And there are a number of different copepods. So we've got a calanoid copepod, we've got a little noplius, copepod noplius, which are pretty cute, and then we've got a cyclopoid copepod, and those females, they have shorter antenna, okay. but they have two egg sacs, which are kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's nice to meet the copepod family. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
6: Right. And so what is, what is that pink thing that looks like a thread? Here, this is probably like a little micro fiber um, microplastic That's a microplastic! That's an actual
0: microplastic. Yeah,
6: so we will, a lot of the times they do come up in our plankton samples. Um, We have other equipment on board that we'll trawl for specifically microplastics, but it takes a long time. We don't do it in two hour programs. But yeah, that's what a lot of that is. And then a lot of this other stuff is honestly just scratches on the. Sure. (laughs) But yeah, we've got that. I'm just trying to see if we can find it. So I
0: remember we said it earlier, but what, what, what Izzy is doing is she's got the microscope I've got the microphone, I almost called the microphone, hooked <laughs> up to like a TV, mm-hmm. and so we're looking at this TV, and she's just scanning through looking for, for different, a lot of, co- there's another
3: one of those yeah, copra pods. Yeah, yeah. And it looks
6: like okay. more
2: microplastic. S-
3: yeah. Some more
6: microplastics, and then we've got some, some of the green is probably just al- algae that has come through, yeah. and we, oh, here's another, here's another one, um, The reason that we don't look directly into the microscope, yeah, if you're just looking straight down into like a teeny tiny concentrated area, that's a no-go for most people. But if you're at least looking at a screen, it's a little bigger. For some people, it doesn't really work to be down here, which is okay. We try and like make sure everybody can see at least one, but our captain, I don't know if you've talked to Captain Lily yet, but she has a saying that there are three types of sailors. We
0: have the, heard this you story. have,
6: yeah. <laughs> those who have gotten seasick, those who are yet to get seasick, and liars. So, <laughs> I'm in the second camp. Knock on wood. <laughs> have yet to get seasick, but it's only, you know, it's only a matter of time. So, yeah, I'm gonna see if we can find. Haven't met the waters that. You're... Right. Do yeah. <gasps> <Jeez.
0: laughs> but yeah, exactly. Exactly. Haven't yet met the waters that will do me Right. Fantastic. So, what is here? One thing we're asking everybody. Well, so first of all. So you're a program coordinator, yeah. And so, so everybody's got these cool ed titles. So, what does a program coordinator coordinate? Is that just what do you do? I guess beyond yeah, micro, or micro, so uh, beyond plankton.
6: Um. Honestly, I am sort of, I am the office dweller for the most okay. part, so um, we are lucky That's and fortunate. Do, yeah, exactly. I'm not on the, sh- on the boat very often. Um, we are lucky enough to enjoy a number of partnerships around the Great Lakes, okay. um, and so all of the programming that we're currently doing here in Chicago is in partnership with the Chicago Yacht Club Foundation, so I've been working with the foundation for the past six months to plan these programs and help um, plan the overnight programs that we're running with them as well, and then during the school year, we do K-12 through programming. We have about 120 schools that come through our programs. I'm the one communicating with those teachers and sort of getting people out on those programs and things like that. So lots of coordinating and logistics on the back end. And then this is the best perk of any job I've ever had, <laughs> being able to be on a boat. <laughs>
0: So what is one thing, so you hope the students, so it's cool to get to see this, mm-hmm. right? But is there sort of one kind of take home that you're hoping to get out of the plankton experience? Or is it just, uh, hey, here's this stuff and it's in our water? What, what What are you hoping to get out of
6: this? I think that our, our hope is that regardless of where students are, what, that at least one of the stations that they go to, something will stick with them, right? So understanding that there are things living in our waters, right, in the Great Lakes, and from fish, which is something that usually comes to mind, but as small as plankton, and just understanding the importance of plankton without them. There are no other fish. There aren't birds. Like, food. birds don't have the right food source, all of those things. So plankton are the basis of the food web in the Great Lakes. So without them, things can't eat. And also, as one of our very brilliant students mentioned earlier phytoplankton produce oxygen and the phytoplankton in our waters produce 50 percent of the world's oxygen trees get all the credit but phytoplankton are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and so without them even though when you think of water you don't really think of oxygen necessarily like you don't breathe humans don't breathe underwater but without the things living in the water we on land are not breathing so so do they breathe in carbon Yeah, so phytoplankton photosynthesize, just like plants. Just like plants on land, pretty much. So they are off-putting oxygen as they're photosynthesizing to stay alive, because they eat the sunlight. Yeah. That's
2: really cool. I kind of respect them a little bit. Yeah.
6: Yeah. (laughs) The
0: (laughs) copepods. Yeah, those copepods. We're not saying you're right, Carolyn. You (laughs) were (laughs) not. So one thing we're asking to kind of wrap up Mm -hmm. is, well, one we're remembering, which is... (laughs) <laughs> there you go. That's a pretty good record. <laughs> What's one cool little Great Lakes factoid we want to
3: share with mm. our educated, enlightened, intelligent, and good-looking audience?
0: Oh,
6: man.
3: It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha.
6: I feel like I usually what I go to is phytoplankton produces half of the world's oxygen. Oh, no, there
3: it is. Done and done.
6: I feel like I just learned something else today, but I can't remember what it is. That's all I got, I'm sorry. You know I really know? am the office troll. Okay.
0: Non phytoplankton only produce like fifty percent of oil toxic drugs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there
6: exactly. You go. Well, thank you so much, is it Yeah. Our,
2: uh... I guess I could ask the question I seem to be asking, which is what you know, what got you here? Oh no. In one Yeah. What was your journey here?
6: So I was born and raised in northern Michigan, so um, I've been connected to the Great Lakes my entire life. Grew up on the water and feel like it's a really foundational part of who I am. Um, and then I worked in summer camps for a long time as a camp director out of college for a number of years right on Lake Michigan. Um did some other things and then moved back up to Traverse City and was just fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time for this position and I knew Inland Seas has such a great reputation in the community for the wonderful outreach and education that they do Um, and so I was lucky enough to be able to come on board and it's just been a wonderful experience for me. I didn't know anything about plankton before right. I started working here, you know? And now I'm like, wow, it's so cool. Look at these different things in the water and the different watersheds and all of it. So um, it's just been wonderful to learn from so many brilliant people and um, and get to, get to meet so many awesome and smart and excited young people too. So you're asking me about seasickness,
1: and it does happen. Um, And when it comes to that, there are three types of people. People who have been seasick, people who have
3: yet to be seasick, and liars.
7: (laughs) Uh, My name is Lily Haynes, and I'm the captain of the sailing vessel
0: Inland Seas. How does one become a captain, and then how did you become the captain of this boat as opposed to any of the other dozens of boats that are out there?
7: Strictly speaking, um, to become a captain, you need to get a license from the Coast Guard. Um, There's all kinds of various ways to go about getting uh, what the Coast Guard wants you to have for your license. Um, And different licenses, uh, different scopes of licenses need different things. So for the license I have, which is 100 ton near coastal, I had to spend um, 720 days uh, working on uh, boats that were about 75 tons or bigger. There's always, there's four exams for your basic motorboat license, and then a sailboat is actually an endorsement on your license. Um, so I five exams, and then there's a background check. Like or, written
0: exams? or Written exams, okay.
7: yeah. Then um, you have to pass a physical. They have to make sure that you're not going to have like a stroke on the job and um uh you get a background check um and then we're all in a random drug testing program i think the most fun part of it is you have to go um you find a notary and say an oath in front of them oh um and have them sign it but uh yeah so you can do you can do all of those things without going to school which i think is actually pretty neat i think a lot of people assume that you must have gone to college or you know gone through a more formal intensive training um I will also say though that it's much easier to get your captain's license than it is to become a captain a competent captain of a boat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's just step one, right? That's just step one. Yeah, although it's fair I mean, two years on a two years on a boat is not unintensive, I think. No. So don't sell yourself short in terms of the yeah. Yeah,
7: well it it depends on the boat that you're working on yeah. and you know. And then competence, does that just come with time? Like just practice
0: and Oh, and...
7: uh, I think it com- it definitely comes with time. It also comes with good teachers. Right? You know, you can work on a boat for four years and nobody can ever teach you anything. Right. You pull on this, do that. Right. And so I think it's a combination of finding good mentors and then kind of also wanting to learn.
2: So how did you come to Inland Seas?
7: Um, well, I came to Inland Seas, um, uh, you know, about 10 years into my boating career. Um, uh, so I was actually working, um, for a different boat in the same area that Inland Seas, uh, docks in. and, uh, so Inland Seas is in Sutton's, Sutton's Bay, Michigan, which is about 20 miles North of Traverse City. Um, I was working on a boat in Traverse City that Inland Seas was actually chartering, for uh, spring field trips because they had so many. Um, and so I was exposed to Inland Seas that way. Um, and uh, that was the company. Um, that company, while I was working for them, I was I, they helped me get my captain's license. Um, and I started relief captaining. Um, Inland Seas was getting busier and busier. And so they started looking for a relief captain as well. Um, and so that allowed me to relief captain for both boats um, and uh, have full-time work in the summertime driving boats instead of part-time work, which was awesome. Um, and it was a really uh, easy, natural stepping stone because I knew most of our educators already. I knew the program, the basic field you know, program that we did from operating it on the other ship, Manitou. Uh, so I, I kind of started getting more and more involved as a relief captain um, uh, with Inland Seas. And then they just this, uh, just this last winter, they bought a second boat, um, which meant that they needed another full-time captain. Um, and uh, I, I, it was probably the easiest job offer I've taken in my life.
0: So tell us a little bit about the boat. So we're, we're on her now, and, and this is the Inland Seas is the name of the boat, right? hmm And so it's a schooner. What are the, do you know the sats, like size and?
7: Sure. Uh, yeah, she's 77 feet long. Um, her displacement weight is 44 tons. Um, uh, her beam is 16 feet, and uh, she sleeps 16 people.
0: 16 people. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, Yeah, we were counting the, the, the beds or whatever. They're not called beds. What are they called? Bunks. Bunks yeah bunks, you can call them bunks. beds though that's all right Stuart. Well, you know what we're getting at anyway yeah yeah that's amazing and so is this like a large schooner or like an average size one or a small one i don't even know uh, i'm gonna say average to small okay and it holds i think 50 people you said earlier is that Uh, right?
7: 45 is our legal capacity yeah
0: got it that makes sense and so you were telling us earlier, maybe you can repeat this, why is it called a schooner? Nobody else knew, but the captain knew. Oh, oh
7: um, well, there's the very like, technical answer, which is that schooners have two or more masts, and on a two-masted schooner, the sail in the back is the biggest. It's the mainsail. It's called it the biggest sail on the boat, the mainsail. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, at least the story I was told uh, was that... Um, uh, the word schooner came from a Scottish word to schoon, which uh, basically meant to
2: skip lightly over the water. And is that what happens? You guys skip lightly over the water? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I guess so. <laughs> so, how have you um, uh, grown into the role of educator? Because
7: uh, there is no school for um, uh, traditional sailing vessels, uh, which this boat would fall under the category of, so, um, you know, boats that are using old technology, essentially. And um, uh, so we are, by nature, uh, more or less trade schools, you know, um, or, or trade jobs, right, where, where you have to have the people who are, everything has to be taught on the job. And so, therefore, that is, uh, that is part of what, um, you know, the mate's position is. Um, you talked to my mate, Rebecca, earlier. She's not, she's not just there to supervise the deck, make sure everything happens, right? She's actually she's also responsible for training everybody. Um, so it's inherently an educator position. You know, I, I, I realized at some point that that was actually um, one of the things I liked best um, about traditional boats, um, was teaching, um, both our crew, but also when passengers step on board a boat or when kids step aboard a boat, they have questions. They want to know things. Um, I've learned a lot, um, a, a whole lot from also watching our educators on the boat. You know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm, uh, not an, an, an I don't have an education background per se. I've done a lot of educa- educating people, um, but I don't have like a formal education background, so I've learned just a just a ton um, watching our staff and how they communicate with children.
0: What's the secret to communicate with children? Think about that. If you had to summarize, like, what have you learned that's really been effective in terms of communicating this this stuff with kids, many of whom are here because they're on a trip that they got pulled into, not necessarily because of something they really wanted to do, right? But that, but so, how do you how do you suck them in?
7: You know, I think a couple of things. You have to like engage their curiosity. And, um, so like one of the things I've learned, um, from our educators is that kids don't like to get questions wrong. So you don't ask them very specific things. You give them pretty like either or choices. Like, do you think there's a little sink or will it float? You know, that's easy, Right. You know, like you don't, you don't have them searching for a technical word, you know, when a kid asks, uh, you know, how how the boat steers, for example, will compare the rudder to a fish's tail, right? You find something accessible. So I think, I think that's, that's pretty much the secret is to engage their curiosity and not really like stifle it by throwing them into the deep end too fast um, and just engaging in concepts that are like, you know, age appropriate, you know? The kids are generally surprisingly smart. Like, there's a lot that they can understand um, if you take the time to kind of get down to their level and, and where
2: they're starting from. Tell us um, a, a fun fact about the Great Lakes that, that you'd like to share.
3: It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha.
7: Uh, I don't know how fun it is, but I would like uh, most more people on the Great Lakes to know that when uh, a boat honks five times, it is not hello.
0: It is not hello. <laughs> All right. It is five times. Oh my goodness, help me. That's what it is.
7: Uh, no, it is, uh, I do not understand your intentions. Oh, oh gee. <laughs> and generally, it means, hey, uh, what are you doing? It is, it is, uh, it's actually officially known as the danger signal. The danger signal.
0: Yeah. How often, have you heard the danger signal before? Oh, I
7: have uh, over the weekend with the the busy traffic in Chicago, uh, the danger signal was a, I I sent the danger signal. Oh, you're giving out and everybody else is
0: like waving. Yeah. Yeah, Hey, real friendly, we're getting five honks.
7: I hear the other commercial boats give the danger signal every once in a while, but yeah, I mean, the way I think about it, right, is like, I'm getting their attention one way or another, because my big fear is that they're just not paying attention at all. Yeah, yeah. regardless yeah. of wh- whether they even know the meaning of the five Right, or if they know what they're supposed to do, or if they know that they're the giveaway vessel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you
0: have torpedoes on this thing?
7: We do not. Okay. No.
0: I mean, secret ones. I. Yep. That could not have been any better. Oh, my goodness, there it yeah, was. Yeah, that was a danger signal. So there was a, a, one of the water taxis giving out a, a danger signal. They don't know what our intentions are. They weren't giving everybody. it to us. No. Okay. Oh, right. For the record. There we no, we're nowhere near. We're, we're at dock. I have a beautifully docked ship.
2: Yes, as are yeah. all
0: the other boats around it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know why? Because these two boats are about to crash. Yeah, you see that one's turning. And then right there is another boat. Yep. Somebody is not fully obeying the rules of the road here. Yeah, they should have. Maybe they only did 719 days. on a, Yeah, no kidding. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. All right.
1: Sorry, this is for
0: what again? This is for Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I can teach me all about the Great Lakes. It's what we do. It's just an outreach thing we do. It's super fun. I love podcasts.
4: My name is Juliana Lissick, and I'm the associate director and an educator with Inland Seas Education Association. Tell us about what you do. Sure. So my role has many facets to it. Um, I would say the overarching umbrella is kind of like making sure all of our pieces are running. So I teach on the ship. I help do some of the logistics for our programs. I do grant writing and fund development and also oversee a lot of our staff.
0: That's I mean. That sounds really, that's a lot. I'm blown <laughs> away by how everybody, I guess this is how it has to be. Uh, but with the organization, everybody has a lot of hats they wear. We do. There's a lot of little things. Cause we it, do. Even though you have a, two two boats, it's still kind of a shoestring thing, isn't it? In terms of just. It is. Yeah. So each of our staff members wears
4: many hats within the organization. And we also have a really great group of 80 to 100 volunteers who help out. And so Brad, who is a deckhand today, is a volunteer. And oftentimes we have instructors who are volunteers, but they spend so much time training to become crew members, to become instructors with our programs, and they help us do ship maintenance and office work. So we're really supported by a huge group of volunteers on top of a staff of about 11.
2: So I'm curious, how did Inland Seas, the whole
4: concept, get, get started um, like, and the support behind it? Yeah, great question. So our founder's name is Tom Kelly. And he was a Great Lakes scientist, and he spent time working on a ship called the Clearwater, which is out on the Hudson River. And so they do a similar program where they do environmental advocacy on the Hudson River. And he worked on that boat, and he said, we need one of these in the Great Lakes. We need to have a program that takes kids out and takes people out onto the Great Lakes on a boat to learn about the Great Lakes from being on a boat on the water. And so he founded Inland Seas in 1989, And it was successful. After a couple of years, he um, leased a couple different ships and decided we need our own boat. And so the ship that we're on right now, Inland Seas, was built specifically for our organization. So this boat has been with us since 1994. It was built to the specs that he knew we needed for being able to do science on board with kids. It's a really stable platform, um, so it's not too rocky. We have our lab below deck and from there it just kind of grew so we had school groups coming out with us um, in the spring and the fall and then over the years we've grown to be going to different ports throughout the summer so it was really his vision and dream to have this program on the Great Lakes that brought it here.
2: That's great and so how do you guys decide where you're going to go in a given year?
4: Yeah so as we're growing our partners it's become harder and harder to decide where we are because everyone wants us working with them but that's what a lot of our winter months are spent doing and so We have certain audiences that we want to reach, and so during the summer we go to places where folks um, aren't necessarily able to get to us. So whether it's far away in the Upper Peninsula or Detroit or Chicago, um, and so we can bring our platform to them. And so we connect with different partners, whether it's through university partnerships or... Um, Different youth organizations, and we work with them throughout the winter to figure out what fits into our schedule logistically and fits in with their schedule. And so, it's a lot of communication and partnership and relationship building to figure out what that summer
0: schedule looks like. And it's stuff that's largely funded through donations and and things like that. Because I mean, it's uh, the the logistics are impressive, Mm -hmm. but uh, I, you know. Boats ain't boats cheap, right? Yep, yeah. you will you'll bust not, out another thousand, right? It's not and, the cheapest and so, form of
4: environmental education. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yep. So, so do y'all have to work with, is it corporate partners or private donations or whatever?
4: Yeah, so it's a combination. Um, so we're about a third grant funded, and those are anywhere from grants through NOAA um, to family foundations. It's about a third individual donors, so private donations. And then we do have some earned revenue through ticket sales on some of our public sales That we offer for families up north so it's a combination of funding sources but lots of grant writing lots of foundation relationship building and how do you bring the kids to the to the to the ship um how how does that come to pass yeah so um we work a lot with teachers um who bring their classrooms to us in the spring and the fall and so they bus up to our campus in sutton's bay And then when we come to Away Ports, we typically are partnering with someone who connects with those youth organizations to bring them to the ship. And so, again, it's back to that whole relationship building, and they help us make the connection to get the participants on the boat.
0: So one thing we can't help but notice is that it's basically an all-female crew here, which is awesome and worth noting um i think although someone else was saying we can't wait until it's not awesome and worth noting it just is (laughs) definitely yep is that intentional or is that just how it uh sort of has evolved over time
4: um so it's it's how it has evolved over time and it is you are seeing a handful of the bigger crew that we have and so um we had captain lily with us today we also have another full-time captain captain ben um and so on any given day it could be either lily or ben and then Our crew ranges, we have men and women who help us crew. Um, Where we do put some intention into it is when we do our overnight programs with young women. We really think it's important to have that female leadership on board, um, both so that they can connect with the leadership, but also just seeing yourself represented in roles that are traditionally uh, male. And so when we do, for instance, the overnight with young women from Chicago going back to Sutton's Bay, Um, we'll have an all-female crew on board for that. And so that's when we put a little more intention into who do we have as representation for them. But on any given day, it can be a mix of men and women as part of our crew. But you're right, that today
0: was yeah. largely well, female-dominated. I think, dominated. So, well, I think so when you're talking about expanding people's just worldviews overall, because the whole point is you're getting people who may not be on a boat like this. Right. Um, or they, or we were saying earlier, they may not even fully understand there's a lake here. Mm-hmm. I know my kids don't. Mm-hmm. Even though we come up once or twice a year, it's like still trying to really comprehend what that means. That's hard. But then to see also uh, uh, an expansive definition of who can be what type of role, I think it's really, really, really important. So that's really awesome that you do.
4: Yeah. And I I think one of the neatest things about how we do education is it's one thing to learn about the lake and about aquatic ecology when you're in a classroom on shore, but to really be out on the lake and taking samples that day and saying, we might get something, we might not get something, but this is what's happening in the lake right now at this moment. um, I think there's something really powerful to that. And so the students are able to use that scientific equipment. They're able to take those samples that day from the water and the other component of it is wanting them to have a positive connection to the lake our whole ethos is you're going to protect what you love and to love something you have to have experience with it and so if we're giving them that positive experience out on the water they're going to have that really memorable time out there and hopefully that will help be a touch point for creating that connection to the great lakes
2: Nice. This sounds like a dry question, but do you guys do like like evaluation kind of stuff to to kind of get a handle on how that goes? We
4: do. Yep. So we we survey the teachers um, who bring their classrooms out about um, the experience and, you know, they're with their students doing more classroom extension after the field trip back in the classroom so we can hear from them. Um, for our participants in the overnight trips, they all fill out surveys, and so we're always, always doing evaluation of how we can improve our programs. We debrief as a staff about what are things that went well, what are things that didn't go well. So every year we're trying to improve upon it. And I bet you get some really, really nice
2: stories about the kids and the excitement that they had and what they learned and blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah,
4: I think one of the best parts for me, we get a lot of thank you notes from kids, and they'll draw pictures of the ship and they'll put the little microscope on there, and it's. It's always really, it's telling, it's almost a form of evaluation in itself to see what do they remember, what are they drawing on there. Some of them will make a big goby on the front, others will really uh, focus in on the wheel and have like a big wheel on the front of the thank you note. And so those are always very cute to get back and kind of hear what their memories are from the field trip in their in their oh, thank you notes.
0: See so I'll do a lot of education, but at least when I've worked with kids is you end up learning stuff too. Is there something that like you've learned through this process, either about yourself or the lakes or education that it might be kind of interesting to talk about?
4: Yeah. I think for me it's the power of a hands on experience. I think you can't replicate that in a classroom and so Having the kids be able to, you know, when we take a benthos sample from the bottom, like touch the mud or hold around goby or see those plankton swimming around under the microscope. Like those those key moments are really what's going to spark that curiosity and that interest. And that's been my biggest takeaway. I love seeing them get excited. It makes me excited, even though I see this stuff every day. And so I think getting those place-based hands-on experiences is, I think, a really great way to connect people to the lakes and to science and to uh, let them know it's something that's accessible. I think field work is so important and good and a fun piece of science that they don't always get in school. So I love being able to provide that for them.
0: Well, so, Julian Lissick, thank you so much for inviting us on this boat. This has been amazing. I'd actually not been out in the Great Lakes that much on a boat because I don't make boat money. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I know what I make, and it ain't boat money. Um, but that's not the actual reason that I drove up here from West Lafayette and the Rini came uh, taking the the, the, the the brown line. line. Rini's not riding the brown line just to get on a boat. Rini's riding the brown line to ask you two questions, and the first one is this. If you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch mm. which would you have
4: definitely a sandwich for sandwich lunch, for lunch. much more of a savory gal
0: much more of a savory gal and so when we <laughs> go up to uh wherever you are near grand not grand rapids what's the other one traverse city i've got traverse city bourbon in my basement you think i would anyway the point is this i'm going to traverse city i'm gonna that afternoon i will have a bourbon but before then i want a nice full stomach so that i can have two bourbons without it being an issue where should i go to get a really great sandwich
4: so I would suggest you go to Leland, and there's an old fishing town called Fishtown in Leland, and in Fishtown is the Village Cheese Shanty, and they have delightful sandwiches. I'd say the most common is the North Shore. It's got herbed mayo on it. It's got turkey and bacon.
0: And I think mayo you'd like it. That's excellent. And so our normal second question, we're not going to ask you, because the most special place to be on the Great Lakes is right here. That's right. Right on our schooner. (laughs) schooner. But we are going to ask this, which is we are asking everybody who we remember, which is a solid 80 percent of the people we've talked to. What's like one cool Great Lakes little factoid that you have to share with our audience?
3: Great Lakes wide audience made up of movers, shakers. It's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes Factoid, it's a great factoid about the Great Lakes.
4: I think I might get this number wrong, but the fact that there's over 35,000 islands within the Great Lakes blows my mind. And I love visiting the islands that have communities on them and the ones that are national parks and hiking on them. And I just think they're so unique to our lakes. And there's not, you know, the Great Lakes are so big. And so to have that many islands in the lakes, I think, helps with the scale of them and kind of picturing you know, how much water is out there to have 35,000 islands?
0: So, we have Jillian back. The question we've been asking everybody is, is there like a cool Great Lakes little factoid that you would like to share with our educated, good-looking audience? Yes. Thousands There's of listeners. so
5: many. Ah, full disclosure, I went to graduate school at University of Minnesota Duluth. Duluth. Large Lakes Observatory. So I studied the Great Lakes at a graduate level. There we go. So I oh, know this
0: many is good. Well, let me sit down. Yeah. All right. Factoid. Um, we're gonna go. We're gonna go top three factoids then. Oh, top three. Yep, three. Okay. First.
3: It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes.
5: My favorite organisms in the lake. Okay. Are called diatoms.
3: Diatoms.
5: They're so tiny we can't see them on our setup here on the ship, but um. They most of them are photosynthetic yeah. so like the algaes but they're their own
0: diatons. Why are they called diatons? diatons what's the two di means two what's the two
5: yeah um, so I'm not sure about the like you know the Latin origins of that but the cool thing about them is that they uh, instead of making their cell walls uh, soft and gooey like they're hard and rigid and they make them out of silica so essentially they're little plants that have their own little glass house around them they have really cool structures and shapes to them so they they like pull the silica out of the water and they make their cell wall out of silica glass and uh at the end of their life you know they have to kind of actively keep themselves up in the water the end of their life uh that sinks to the bottom but uh it's glass, so it really doesn't degrade that fast. And if you take a core sample of a lake, the mud down at the bottom, you can go through on a microscope and look through all the diatoms. The dead
0: diatom houses. All these
5: like layers. And if you, if you have a long enough core, you've got all these layers, and you basically go back through time... And you can see if the diatom population has shifted. Oh, so it's like the ice core.
0: Oh, it's a little bit of yes, yes. living, well, not living, I guess dead history. Yeah, yeah, huh.
5: yeah. So it's this, like, fossil record. And you can use it in, you know, modern diatoms. They know what their preferences are, whether it's, like, super rainy or really dry or kind of salty or really fresh. They all have preferences to them. And you can use that to go back to... In, you know, way into the past and, and make educated guesses about what the climate was in that region. So um, here in North America, the Laurentian Great Lakes, scientists use that to figure out what was happening since the last ice age and beyond. And then um, in other parts of the world, so the Rift Lakes of East Africa, there are seven Great Lakes over there. Um, they did not, They were not covered by ice during the ice age. So those lakes have a sediment record that go back like 25 million
0: years. No way.
5: Yeah, so you can do the whole quaternary how long a, period. All right, maybe you don't know this. Yeah.
0: How, how long of an ice core sample, or not ice, mud
5: sample. sample
0: would you need? Like how deep down do I have to go to go 25 million years if I'm in one of the African in those? Lakes?
5: Like, it depends on how much sediment is oh, accumulating sure. each year. Every lake is different. Um, I mean, those cores, we're talking like hundreds of meters of core brought up, and uh, there's a fun place in Minnesota called Lacor, and it's the largest lacustrine core repository. Oh, yeah, that's
0: French for the core. In
5: the Yeah, um, at least in North America, but I think around the world, and, and when you go and spend all this money to pull that mud out. Bring it back and then it lives forever in a repository uh, as the scientists sample it further and further. So, that was my first favorite fact. Yeah, diatoms. So, I mean, factoid. you can count that as two if you want. I was
0: thinking kind of bite size, but that's all right. This is good. All right, factoid number Pick one. Yeah. Any of right.
5: those that you want, no, no, yeah.
0: I, I want more. What else? Give me another Great Lakes factoid.
5: Um, another Great Lakes factoid.
3: It's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes. Factoid, it's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Chah.
5: Is that, um, at least here in the five Great Lakes, uh, Lake Superior has a different formation history mm. than the other Great Lakes. It was part of a, a rift, in the mid, a mid-continent okay. rift. Yeah, it was one arm of the rift, so it has a volcanic history. Uh, and, you know, the lakes are just forming where the depressions on the Earth are, right? Same with ice. They flow to the lowest point on the Earth. So, um, yes, there were glaciers that kind of carved out all five of the Great Lakes. However, there was a valley up there in Lake Superior because there was a giant rift. Lots of volcanism happens up there, so all the rocks around Lake Superior are volcanic rocks. and It's very different from here, Lake Michigan, which is all like limestone uh, sedimentary rocks it's got a whole different history up there that's oh, one of that what faces. makes it so deep yes right yeah because it was actively rifting apart uh, in a big valley uh, connect that to my other favorite fact which is that the the great lakes in Africa and the whole eastern side of the continent those are all rift lakes so and, and that's still an active rift so there's active volcanism oh. happening on those lakes The continent is splitting um, off right there.
0: Not only are these these amazing factoids, but you're connecting them professionally. (laughs) All right, let's bring it home. One more factoid. This is
3: good. It's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes.
5: Well, just a personal one. We traveled 260 miles to get here with a group of eight students, and we are still on the same lake. And we still drink, we're drinking the same water. Like, so up where we live in northern Michigan is still Lake Michigan. We traveled five days to get you all bring water, right? Yes, Like, when do. you say
0: you're being metaphorical when you're saying we're drinking, you're not leaning over Getting the bucket. Well, the... but,
5: however, I mean, the water that we fill up with, that was pulled through a treatment uh, facility out of the Great Lakes. Treatment facilities we fill up here. So, I mean, we are drinking lake water. And that and that's true up where we live as well. So um, yeah, 260 miles. We're still on the same lake.
0: Anyway, that was a really great time. Uh, like I said, if you can get on a boat, you should get on a boat. That was really cool. Uh, it's really neat what they're doing. It's very similar to Sea Grant's missions mission in a lot of ways, and that they're out there helping educate youth and pull them in. But to have something like a ship to attract the youth uh, is, is pretty fun. And I mean, I got to go schooning. I'd never schooned, so I'm always happy to do a little bit of schooning. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the cool stuff we do at iiseagrant.org or at I-L-I-N Sea Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Maybe Instagram. I don't think we're threading yet. We could thread. We're not currently threading. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Megan Gunn, and Reanie Miles. Our senior producers Carolyn Foley and Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport, JD. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, QR. And we thank her for everything. If you have a comment about the show or a question, send us an email, Lakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline, 765-496-IISG. That's Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, 496-4474. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes, but like a microfiber and a plankton sample, it's not really clear if we belong there. But hey, everybody, thanks so much for listening and keep grading those lakes. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the horn's fairly loud. I'm just going to turn these to all different volume levels, and then one of them will not get blown out. Okay. I think we're good. All right, horn. Horn. Oh, baby.
3: Yes! Score!